Chapter 31 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa S. Ware. Chapter 31 Causes of Earthquakes and Volcanoes. It will hardly be questioned, after the description before given of the phenomena of earthquakes and volcanoes, that both of these agents have, to a certain extent, a common origin, and I may now therefore proceed to inquire into their probable causes. But first, it may be well to recapitulate some of those points of relation and analogy which led naturally to the conclusion that they spring from a common source. The regions convulsed by violent earthquakes include within them the site of all the active volcanoes. Earthquakes, sometimes local, sometimes extending over vast areas, often precede volcanic eruptions. The subterranean movement and the eruption return again and again, at irregular intervals of time, and with unequal degrees of force, to the same spots. The action of either may continue for a few hours, or for several consecutive years. Paroxysmal convulsions are usually followed in both cases by long periods of tranquility. Thermal and mineral springs are abundant in countries of earthquakes and active volcanoes. Lastly, hot springs situated in districts considerably distant from volcanic vents have been observed to have their temperature suddenly raised and the volume of their water augmented by subterranean movements. All these appearances are evidently more or less connected with the passage of heat from the interior of the earth to the surface, and where there are active volcanoes, there must exist, at some unknown depth below, enormous masses of matter intensely heated and, in many instances, in a constant state of fusion. We have first, then, to inquire, whence is this heat derived? It has long been a favorite conjecture that the whole of our planet was originally in a state of igneous fusion, and that the central parts still retain a great portion of their primitive heat. Some have imagined, with the late Sir W. Herschel, that the elementary matter of the earth may have been first in a gaseous state, resembling those nebulae which we behold in the heavens, and which are of dimensions so vast that some of them would fill the orbits of the remotest planets of our system. The increased power of the telescope has of late years resolved the greater number of these nebulous appearances into clusters of stars, but so long as they were confidently supposed to consist of aeriform matter, it was a favorite conjecture that they might, if concentrated, form solid spheres, and it was also imagined that the evolution of heat, attendant on condensation, might retain the materials of the new globes in a state of igneous fusion. Without dwelling on such speculations, which can only have a distant bearing on geology, we may consider how far the spheroidal form of the earth affords sufficient ground for presuming that its primitive condition was one of universal fluidity. The discussion of this question would be superfluous were the doctrine of original fluidity less popular for it may well be asked why the globe should be supposed to have had a pristine shape different from the present one. Why the terrestrial materials, when first called into existence or assembled together in one place, should not have been subject to rotation so as to assume at once that form which alone could retain their several parts in a state of equilibrium. Let us, however, concede that the statical figure may be a modification of some other pre-existing form, and suppose the globe to have been at first a perfect and quiescent sphere, covered with a uniform ocean. What would happen when it was made to turn round on its axis with its present velocity? This problem has been considered by Playfair in his illustrations, 
and he has decided that if the surface of the earth, as laid down in Hutton's theory, has been repeatedly changed by the transportation of the detrius of the land to the bottom of the sea, the figure of the planet must in that case, whatever it may have been originally, be brought at length to coincide with the spheroid of equilibrium. Sir John Herschel, also in reference to the same hypothesis, observes, a centrifugal force would in that case be generated, whose general tendency would be to urge the water at every point of the surface to recede from the axis. A rotation might indeed be conceived so swift as to flit the whole ocean from the surface like water from a mop, but this would require a far greater velocity than what we now speak of. In the case supposed, the weight of the water would still keep it on the earth, and the tendency to recede from the axis could only be satisfied, therefore, by the water leaving the poles and flowing towards the equator, there heaping itself up in a ridge and being retained in opposition to its weight or natural tendency towards the center by the pressure thus caused. This, however, could not take place without laying dry the polar regions so that perturbant land would appear at the poles and a zone of ocean be disposed around the equator. This would be the first or immediate effect, let us now see what would afterwards happen if things were allowed to take their natural course. The sea is constantly beating on the land, grinding it down and scattering its worn-off particles and fragments in the state of sand and pebbles over its bed. Geological facts afford abundant proof that the existing continents have all of them undergone this process even more than once and been entirely torn in fragments or reduced to powder and submerged and reconstructed. Land in this view of the subject, loses its attribute of fixity. As a mass, it might hold together in opposition to forces which the water freely obeys, but in its state of successive or simultaneous degradation, when disseminated through the water, in the state of sand or mud, it is subject to all the impulses of that fluid. In the lapse of time, then, the protuberant land would be destroyed and spread over the bottom of the ocean, filling up the lower parts and tending continually to remodel the surface of the solid nucleus in correspondence with the form of equilibrium. Thus, after a sufficient lapse of time, in the case of an earth in rotation, the polar protuberances would gradually be cut down and disappear, being transferred to the equator, as being then the deepest sea, till the earth would assume by degrees the form we observe it to have, that of a flattened or oblate ellipsoid. We are far from meaning here to trace the process by which the earth really assumed its actual form. All we intend is to show that this is the form to which, under a condition of a rotation on its axis, it must tend, and which it would attain even if originally and, so to speak, perversely, constituted otherwise. In this passage, the author has contemplated the superficial effects of aqueous causes only, but neither he nor Playfair seem to have followed out the same inquiry with reference to another part of Hutton's system, namely, that which assumes the successive fusion by heat of different parts of the solid earth. Yet the progress of geology has continually strengthened the evidence in favor of the doctrine that local variations of temperature have melted one part after another of the earth's crust, and this influence has perhaps extended downwards to the very center. If, therefore, before the globe had assumed its present form, it was made to revolve on its axis, all matter to which freedom of motion was given by fusion must, before consolidating, have been impelled towards the equatorial regions in obedience to the centrifugal force. 
Thus, lava flowing out in superficial streams would have its motion retarded when its direction was towards the pole, accelerated when towards the equator. Or, if lakes and seas of lava existed beneath the Earth's crust in equatorial regions, as probably now beneath the Peruvian Andes, the imprisoned fluid would force outwards and permanently upheave the overlying rocks. The statical figure, therefore, of the terrestrial spheroid, of which the longest diameter exceeds the shortest by about 25 miles, may have been the result of gradual and even of existing causes, and not of a primitive, universal, and simultaneous fluidity. Experiments made with the pendulum and observations on the manner in which the Earth attracts the moon have shown that our planet is not an empty sphere, but, on the contrary, that its interior, whether solid or fluid, has a higher specific gravity than the exterior. It has also been inferred that there is a regular increase in density from the surface towards the center, and that the equatorial protuberance is continued inwards. That is to say, that layers of equal density are arranged elliptically and symmetrically from the exterior to the center. These conclusions, however, have been deduced rather as a consequence of the hypothesis of primitive and simultaneous fluidity than proved by experiment. The inequalities in the moon's motion, by which some have endeavored to confirm them, are so extremely slight that the opinion can be regarded as little more than a probable conjecture. The mean density of the earth has been computed by Laplace to be about five and a half or more than five times that of water. Now the specific gravity of many of our rocks is from two and a half to three, and the greater part of the metals range between that density and twenty-one. Hence, some have imagined that the terrestrial nucleus may be metallic, that it may correspond, for example, with the specific gravity of iron, which is about seven. But here a curious question arises in regard to the form which materials, whether fluid or solid, might assume if subjected to the enormous pressure which must obtain at the Earth's center. Water, if it continued to decrease in volume according to the rate of compressibility deduced from experiment, would have its density doubled at the depth of 93 miles and be as heavy as mercury at the depth of 362 miles. Dr. Young computed that, at the Earth's center, steel would be compressed into one-fourth and stone into one-eighth of its bulk. It is more than probable, however, that after a certain degree of condensation, the compressibility of bodies may be governed by laws altogether different from those which we can put to the test of experiment. But the limit is still undetermined, and the subject is involved in such obscurity that we cannot wonder at the variety of notions which have been entertained respecting the nature and conditions of the central nucleus. Some have conceived it to be fluid, others solid. Some have imagined it to have a cavernous structure and have endeavored to confirm this opinion by appealing to observed irregularities in the vibrations of the pendulum in certain countries. An attempt has recently been made by Mr. Hopkins to determine the least thickness which can be assigned to the solid crust of the globe if we assume the whole to have been once perfectly fluid and a certain portion of the exterior to have acquired solidity by gradual refrigeration. This result he has endeavored to obtain by a new solution of the delicate problem of the processional motion of the pole of the earth. It is well known that while the earth revolves around the sun, the direction of its axis remains very nearly the same, i.e. its different positions in space are all nearly parallel to each other. This parallelism, however, is not accurately preserved, so that the axis, instead of coming exactly into the position which it occupied a year before, becomes inclined to it at a very small angle. 
but always retaining very nearly the same inclination to the plane of the Earth's orbit. This motion of the pole changes the position of the equinoxes by about 50 seconds annually, and always in the same direction. Thus, the pole star, after a certain time, will entirely lose its claim to that appellation, until in the course of somewhat more than 25,000 years, the Earth's axis shall again occupy its present angular position, and again point very nearly as now to the pole star. This motion of the axis is called precession. It is caused by the attraction of the sun and moon, and principally the moon, on the protuberant parts of the Earth's equator, and if these parts were solid to a great depth, the motion thus produced would differ considerably from that which would exist if they were perfectly fluid, and encrusted over with a thin shell only a few miles thick. In other words, the disturbing action of the moon will not be the same upon a globe all solid and upon one nearly all fluid, or it will not be the same upon a globe in which the solid shell forms one half of the mass and another in which it forms only one tenth. Mr. Hopkins has, therefore, calculated the amount of precessional motion which would result if we assume the Earth to be constituted as above stated, i.e., fluid internally and enveloped by a solid shell, and he finds that the amount will not agree with the observed motion unless the crust of the Earth be of a certain thickness. In calculating the exact amount, some ambiguity arises in consequence of our ignorance of the effect of pressure in promoting the solidification of matter at high temperatures. The hypothesis least favorable for a great thickness is found to be that which assumes the pressure to produce no effect on the process of solidification. Even on this extreme assumption, the thickness of the solid crust must be nearly 400 miles, and this would lead to the remarkable result that the proportion of the solid to the fluid part would be as 49 to 51, or, to speak in round numbers, there would be nearly as much solid as fluid matter in the globe. The conclusion, however, which Mr. Hopkins announces as that to which his researchers have finally conducted him is thus expressed. Upon the whole, then, we may venture to assert that the minimum thickness of the crust of the globe, which can be deemed consistent with the observed amount of precession, cannot be less than one-fourth or one-fifth of the Earth's radius. That is from 800 to 1,000 miles. It will be remarked that this is a minimum and any still greater amount would be quite consistent with the actual phenomena, the calculations not being opposed to the supposition of the general solidity of the entire globe. Nor do they preclude us from imagining that great lakes or seas of melted matter may be distributed through a shell 400 or 800 miles thick, provided they be so enclosed as to move with it, whatever motion of rotation may be communicated by the disturbing forces of the sun and moon. Central Heat the hypothesis of internal fluidity calls for the more attentive consideration as it has been found that the heat in mines augments in proportion as we descend. Observations have been made not only on the temperature of the air in mines, but on that of the rocks and on the water issuing from them. The mean rate of increase, calculated from results obtained in six of the deepest coal mines in Durham and Northumberland, is one degree Fahrenheit for a descent of 44 English feet. A series of observations made in several of the principal lead and silver mines in Saxony gave one degree Fahrenheit for every 65 feet. In this case, the bulb of the thermometer was introduced into cavities purposely cut in the solid rock at depths varying from 200 to above 900 feet. But in other mines of the same country, it was necessary to descend thrice as far for each degree of temperature.
A thermometer was fixed in the rock of the Dulcoth Mine in Cornwall by Mr. Fox at the great depth of 1,380 feet and frequently observed during 18 months. The mean temperature was 68 degrees Fahrenheit, that of the surface being 50 degrees, which gives one degree for every 75 feet. Kupfer, after an extensive comparison of the results in different countries, makes the increase one degree Fahrenheit for about every 37 English feet. M. Cordier announces, as the result of his experiments and observations on the temperature of the interior of the earth, that the heat increases rapidly with the depth, but the increase does not follow the same law over the whole earth, being twice or three times as much in one country as in another, and these differences are not in constant relation either with the latitudes or longitudes of places. He is of opinion, however, that the increase would not be overstated at one degree centigrade for every 25 meters, or about one degree Fahrenheit for every 45 feet. The experimental well bored at Grinnell near Paris gave about one degree Fahrenheit for every 60 English feet when they had reached a depth of 1,312 feet. Some writers have endeavored to refer to these phenomena, which, however discordant as to the ratio of increasing heat, appear all to point one way, to the condensation of air constantly descending from the surface into the mines for the air under pressure would give out latent heat on the same principle as it becomes colder where rarefied in the higher regions of the atmosphere. But, besides that the quantity of heat is greater than could be supposed to flow from this source, the argument has been answered in a satisfactory manner by Mr. Fox, who has shown that in the mines of Cornwall the ascending have generally a higher temperature than the descending aerial currents. The difference between them was found to vary from 9 degrees to 17 degrees Fahrenheit, a proof that, instead of imparting heat, these currents actually carry off a large quantity from the mines. If we adopt M. Cordia's estimate of 1 degree Fahrenheit for every 45 feet of depth as the mean result, and assume, with the advocates of central fluidity, that the increasing temperature is continued downwards, we should reach the ordinary boiling point of water at about 2 miles below the surface, and at a depth of about 24 miles should arrive at the melting point of iron, a heat sufficient to fuse almost every known substance. The temperature of melted iron was estimated at 21,000 degrees Fahrenheit by Wedgwood, but his pyrometer gives, as is now demonstrated, very erroneous results. Professor Daniel ascertained that the point of fusion is 2,786 degrees Fahrenheit. According to Mr. Daniel's scale, we ought to encounter the internal melted matter before penetrating through a thickness represented by that of the outer circular line in the annex diagram, Figure 92. Whereas, if the other or less correct scale be adopted, we should meet with it at some point between the two circles. The space between them, together with the lines themselves, representing a crust of 200 miles in depth. In either case, we must be prepared to maintain that a temperature many times greater than that sufficient to melt the most refractory substances known to us is sustained at the center of the globe, while a comparatively thin crust resting upon the fluid, remains unmelted, or is even, according to M. Cordier, increasing in thickness by the continual addition of new internal layers solidified during the process of refrigeration. The mathematical calculations of Fourier on the passage of heat through conducting bodies have been since appealed to in support of these views, for he has shown that it is compatible with theory that the present temperature of the surface might coexist with an intense heat at a certain depth below but his reasoning seems to be confined to the conduction of heat through solid bodies, and the conditions of the problem are wholly altered when we reason about a fluid nucleus.
as we must do if it be assumed that the heat augments from the surface to the interior according to the rate observed in mines. For when the heat of the lower portion of a fluid is increased, a circulation begins throughout the mass by the ascent of hotter and the descent of colder currents. And this circulation, which is quite distinct from the mode in which heat is propagated through solid bodies, must evidently occur in the supposed central ocean if the laws of fluid and of heat are the same there as upon the surface. In Mr. Daniel's experiments for obtaining a measure of the heat of bodies at their point of fusion, he invariably found that it was impossible to raise the heat of a large crucible of melted iron, gold, or silver a single degree beyond the melting point, so long as a bar of the respective metals was kept immersed in the fluid portions. So in regard to other substances, however great the quantities fused, their temperature could not be raised while any solid pieces immersed in them remained unmelted, every accession of heat being instantly absorbed during their liquefaction. These results are, in fact, no more than the extension of a principle previously established, that so long as a fragment of ice remains in water, we cannot raise the temperature of the water above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. If, then, the heat of the Earth's center amount to 450 degrees Fahrenheit, as M. Cordier deems highly probable, that is to say, about 20 times the heat of melted iron, even according to Wedgwood's scale, and upwards of 160 times according to the improved pyrometer, it is clear that the upper parts of the fluid mass could not long have a temperature only just sufficient to melt rocks. There must be a continual tendency towards a uniform heat, and until this were accomplished, by the interchange of portions of fluid of different densities, the surface could not begin to consolidate. Nor, on the hypothesis of primitive fluidity, can we conceive any crust to have been formed until the whole planet had cooled down to about the temperature of incipient fusion. It cannot be objected that hydrostatic pressure would prevent a tendency to equalization of temperature, for, as far as observations have yet been made, it is found that the waters of deep lakes and seas are governed by the same laws as a shallow pool, and no experiments indicate that solids resist fusion under high pressure. The arguments indeed now controverted always proceed on the admission that the internal nucleus is in a state of fusion. It may be said that we may stand upon the hardened surface of a lava current while it is still in motion, nay, may descend into the crater of Vesuvius after an eruption, and stand on the scoriae while every crevice shows that the rock is red-hot two or three feet below us, and at a somewhat greater depth all is, perhaps, in a state of fusion. May not, then, a much more intense heat be expected at the depth of several hundred yards or miles? The answer is that until a great quantity of heat has been given off, either by the emission of lava or in a latent form by the evolution of steam and gas, the melted matter continues to boil in the crater of a volcano. But ebullition ceases when there is no longer a sufficient supply of heat from below. And then a crust of lava may form on the top, and showers of scoria may then descend upon the surface and remain unmelted. If the internal heat be raised again, ebullition will recommence and soon fuse the superficial crust. So, in the case of the moving current, we may safely assume that no part of the liquid beneath the hardened surface is much above the temperature sufficient to retain it in a state of fluidity. It may assist us in forming a clearer view of the doctrine now controverted if we consider what would happen were a globe of homogeneous composition placed under circumstances analogous in regard to the distribution of heat to those above stated. 
If the whole planet, for example, were composed of water covered with a spheroidal crust of ice 50 miles thick and with an interior ocean having a central heat about 200 times that of the melting point of ice, or 6,400 degrees Fahrenheit, and if, between the surface and the center, there was every intermediate degree of temperature between that of melting ice and that of the central nucleus, could such a state of things last for a moment? If it must be conceded, in this case, that the whole spheroid would be instantly in a state of violent ebullition, that the ice, instead of being strengthened annually by new internal layers, would soon melt and form part of an atmosphere of steam, on what principle can it be maintained that analogous effects would not follow in regard to the Earth under the conditions assumed in the theory of central heat? M. Cordier admits that there must be tides in the internal melted ocean, but their effect, he says, has become feeble, although originally, when the fluidity of the globe was perfect, the rise and fall of these ancient land tides could not have been less than from 13 to 16 feet. Now, granting for a moment that these tides have become so feeble as to be incapable of causing the fissured shell of the earth to be first uplifted and then depressed every six hours, still may we not ask whether, during eruptions, the lava, which is supposed to communicate with a great central ocean, would not rise and fall sensibly in a crater such as Stromboli, where there is always melted matter in a state of ebullition? Whether chemical changes may produce volcanic heat. Having now explained the reasons which have induced me to question the hypothesis of central heat as the primary source of volcanic action, it remains to consider what has been termed the chemical theory of volcanoes. It is well known that many, perhaps all, of the substances of which the earth is composed are continually undergoing chemical changes. To what depth these processes may be continued downwards must, in a great degree, be matter of conjecture. But there is no reason to suspect that, if we could descend to a great distance from the surface, we should find elementary substances differing essentially from those with which we are acquainted. All the solid, fluid, and gaseous bodies known to us consist of a very small number of these elementary substances variously combined. The total number of elements at present known is less than 60, and not half of these enter into the composition of the more abundant inorganic productions. Some portions of such compounds are daily undergoing decomposition, and their constituent parts being set free are passing into new combinations. These processes are by no means confined to minerals at the Earth's surface, and are very often accompanied by the evolution of heat, which is intense in proportion to the rapidity of the combinations. At the same time, there is a development of electricity. The spontaneous combustion of beds of bituminous shale and of refuse coal thrown out of mines is generally due to the decomposition of pyrites, and it is the contact of air and water which brings about the change. Heat results from the oxidation of the sulfur and iron, though on what principle heat is generated when two or more bodies having a strong affinity for each other unite suddenly is wholly unexplained. Electricity as a source of volcanic heat. It has already been stated that chemical changes develop electricity which, in its turn, becomes a powerful disturbing cause. As a chemical agent, says Davy, its silent and slow operation in the economy of nature is much more important than its grand and impressive operation in lightning and thunder. It may be considered not only as directly producing an infinite variety of changes, but as influencing almost all which take place. It would seem, indeed, that chemical attraction itself is only a peculiar form of the exhibition of electrical attraction.
Now that it has been demonstrated that magnetism and electricity are always associated and are perhaps only different conditions of the same power, the phenomena of terrestrial magnetism have become of no ordinary interest to the geologist. Soon after the first great discoveries of Ostert and electromagnetism, Ampere suggested that all the phenomena of the magnetic needle might be explained by supposing currents of electricity to circulate constantly in the shell of the globe in directions parallel to the magnetic equator. This theory has acquired additional consistency the farther we have advanced in science, and according to the experiments of Mr. Fox on the electromagnetic properties of metalliferous veins, some trace of electric current seems to have been detected in the interior of the earth. Some philosophers ascribe these currents to the chemical action going on in the superficial parts of the globe to which air and water have the readiest access, while others refer them, in part at least, to thermoelectricity excited by the solar rays on the surface of the earth during its rotation, successive parts of the atmosphere, land, and sea being exposed to the influence of the sun and then cooled again in the night. That this idea is not a mere speculation is proved by the correspondence of the diurnal variations of the magnet with the apparent motion of the sun, and by the greater amount of variation in summer than in winter, and during the day than in the night. M. de la Rive, although conceding that such minor variations of the needle may be due to thermoelectricity, contends that the general phenomena of terrestrial magnetism must be attributed to currents far more intense, which, though liable to secular fluctuations, act with much greater constancy and regularity than the causes which produce the diurnal variations. The remark seems just, yet it is difficult to assign limits to the accumulated influence even of a very feeble force constantly acting on the whole surface of the earth. The subject, however, must evidently remain obscure until we become acquainted with the causes which give a determinate direction to the supposed electric currents. Already, the experiments of Faraday on the rotation of magnets have led him to speculate on the manner in which the Earth, when once it had become magnetic, might produce electric currents within itself, in consequence of its diurnal rotation. We have seen also in a former chapter, page 129, that the recent observations of Schwab, 1852, have led Colonel Sabine to the discovery of a connection between certain periodical changes which take place in the spots on the Sun, and a certain cycle of variations in terrestrial magnetism. These seem to point to the existence of a solar magnetic period and suggest the idea of the sun's magnetism exerting an influence on the mass of our planet. In regard to thermoelectricity, I may remark that it may be generated by great inequalities of temperature arising from a partial distribution of volcanic heat. Wherever, for example, masses of rock occur of great horizontal extent and of considerable depth, which are at one point in a state of fusion, as beneath some active volcano, at another red-hot, and at a third comparatively cold, strong thermoelectric action may be excited. Some, perhaps, may object that this is reasoning in a circle, first to introduce electricity as one of the primary causes of volcanic heat, and then to derive the same heat from thermoelectric currents. But there must, in truth, be much reciprocal action between the agents now under consideration and it is very difficult to decide which should be regarded as the prime mover, or to see where the train of changes once begun would terminate. Whether subterranean electric currents, if once excited, might sometimes possess the decomposing power of the voltaic pile is a question not perhaps easily answered in the present state of science. But such a power, if developed, would at once supply us with a never-failing source of chemical action from which volcanic heat might be derived.
Recapitulation Before entering, in the next chapter, still farther into the inquiry, how far the phenomena of volcanoes and earthquakes accord with the hypothesis of a continued generation of heat by chemical action, it may be desirable to recapitulate in a few words the conclusions already obtained. First, the primary causes of the volcano and the earthquake are, to a great extent, the same, and must be connected with the passage of heat from the interior to the surface. Secondly, this heat has been referred, by many, to a supposed state of igneous fusion of the central parts of the planet when it was first created, of which a part still remains in the interior, but is always diminishing in intensity. Thirdly, the spheroidal figure of the Earth, adduced in support of this theory, does not of necessity imply a universal and simultaneous fluidity in the beginning. For supposing the original figure of our planet had been strictly spherical, which, however, is a gratuitous assumption resting on no established analogy. Still, the statical figure must have been assumed, if sufficient time be allowed, by the gradual operation of the centrifugal force, acting on the materials brought successively within its action by aqueous and igneous causes. Fourthly, it appears, from experiment, that the heat in mines increases progressively with their depth, and if the ratio of increase be continued uniformly from the surface to the interior, the whole globe, with the exception of a small external shell, must be fluid, and the central parts must have a temperature many times higher than that of melted iron. Fifthly, but the theory adopted by M. Cordier and others, which maintains the actual existence of such a state of things, seems wholly inconsistent with the laws which regulate the circulation of heat through fluid bodies. For, if the central heat were as intense as is represented, there must be a circulation of currents, tending to equalize the temperature of the resulting fluids, and the solid crust itself would be melted. Sixthly, instead of an original central heat, we may, perhaps, refer the heat of the interior to chemical changes constantly going on in the Earth's crust. For the general effect of chemical combination is the evolution of heat and electricity, which in their turn become sources of new chemical changes. End of chapter 31. Recording by Lisa S. Ware.